Hello, Autism One Radio listeners, and welcome to our show, the Parent-Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. On each episode, we have discussed a specific topic related to overall biomedical intervention for neuroimmune disorders and provided an update on my son Jake's recovery from autistic symptoms under the care of Dr. Kendall Stewart. Today's topic is dietary interventions and nutritional supplements. This is one area that I have personally researched a great deal for Jake's recovery, and I've learned a lot more from Dr. Stewart about the biochemistry involved with nutritional intervention. So I'd like to introduce my co-host, Dr. Kendall Stewart. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. Um, Although it was um, a sleepless night, I just returned home from the National Autism Conference in Florida. Good. So I'm looking forward to sharing some information with everyone on today's show, some tidbits here and there, and also ask for your opinion on some of the things that I've learned um, about the newer interventions discussed at the conference. But before we do that, I'd like to briefly discuss how really the diet was one of the first interventions we used with Jake. When he was about four years old and we had the diagnosis for him of PDD-NOS, um, I did some research on the internet like most parents do and I found the uh, GFCF diet. And aside from anything else, there wasn't a lot written about the diet at the time, only that there was a theory floating around that gluten and casein were inflammatory proteins and can have an opioid effect in our children. Sure. So I asked our pediatrician at the time, and he said, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. Just make sure if you take out dairy, you know, that you supplement with calcium. But he said, you know, we remove that for kids that have milk allergies, so it's not really going to be detrimental. Um, then I did more research and found that casein stays in the body for just 24 hours. So if you remove it, you'll probably see a reaction positive or negative uh, within a quick amount, a fast amount of time. So we removed dairy, didn't see a lot of improvement. Um, and then gluten, which is the wheat protein, we removed, but knowing that that can stay in the body for up to 18 months, um, and it takes a really long time to see results sometimes, I thought, well, I'll just watch him. And removing gluten, I will say, is much more difficult in a family because of cross-contamination. Most parents have found that out. But um, once we removed gluten, we saw results within about four weeks. Jake um, suddenly became more aware, more focused, and he, the main behavior is he stopped giggling after his meals. Well, his meals at the time were macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets, and I think I remember telling you this, those were the only two foods that he would eat. Mm-hmm. I know you've heard that story before. Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> so what did we do? We did the smart thing, and we uh, just moved to macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets that were gluten-free and casein-free. Um, so we bought the packaged uh, foods that were GFCF, thought we were doing the great things, and for a while, Jake got better. But then after a while, didn't seem to be helping. And I'm going to talk more about why that happened. But um, one of the things that, I, I, that we found when we started seeing you was that um, you suggested we consider some other things. One was a food allergy panel. Mm-hmm. And then one thing, and I, I've heard you talk about this before, is a rotation diet. And I just cannot stress how important this advice is um, because there's just um, – so many diets to choose from. There's GFCF, there's specific carbohydrate, there's uh, elemental diets, there's all these diets. Parents are very confused, but can you tell our listeners what your advice is regarding diets? Oh boy, okay. And starting diets. Well, um, first of all, you know that I'm a fan of knowledge. And uh, when you start looking at these diets, even a GFCF diet, all you can see on the parent's face when they initially learn about it is just panic. Okay, because invariably uh, mothers will go through the the whole concept of um, what am I going to feed my child? Uh, he won't eat that. Uh, blah blah blah. I mean, it's just it creates a lot of turmoil in the family in general because a lot of times that's not the only child in the family, and obviously we have a big dichotomy, and it can be with dad or with the other kids or even with mom, and so. We need to go back to the foundation of um, the disorder in the first place. Um, As you well know um, from discussion in other shows that we are dealing with a neuroimmune syndrome here. And by definition, the immune system is really basically divided into two major cell groups, and that's the T cells and the B cells. So why there's so much issue regarding inflammation and allergy sensitivity in these kids is because when we have a T-cell deficit for whatever reason, I don't care if it's chemicals, I don't care if it's a methylation deficiency, it can be any of these compromised um, effects on the T-cell system, the body has to do something to respond to 
the standard attacks of uh, the everyday life of the child, and that is to take the B cells, the allergic inflammatory cells of the immune system, and essentially activate them into a hyperactive uh, response state. Now those are the cells that create uh, antibodies and create sensitivities and allergies. And, and so it should become no surprise that these kids do have food sensitivities and food allergies. Now I want to make a distinction between those. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different uh, chemicals uh, and different antibodies that react uh, differently in the body to certain types of sensitivities and reactivities. The first is called IgE, and that's an acute allergy. That's mm-hmm. like if you eat a peanut and your throat swells up and your lips swell, that is an acute allergy, and that's not hard for people to figure out. That is really not what we're talking about here. That occurs within the first few minutes of ingesting the food you're sensitive to and is treated fairly well with antihistamines but sometimes can re- result in anaphylactic reactions and can be... Um, <laughs> you know, kind of explosive and Mm -hmm. dynamic. And that does occur occasionally in these kids, but this is not what we're talking about in this room. The second type of sensitivity we are talking about is called a delayed sensitivity. And that delayed sensitivity involves the uh, antibody called an immunoglobulin G Mm -hmm. or IgG. And immunoglobulin G, the reason it is a slow reactor, in fact, we call it a delayed sensitivity reaction because the sensitivity can occur from four to 24 hours after the ingestion of the food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, good luck not ingesting that food, and especially with yourself, but much less your child, telling which food that you were sensitive to, Mm -hmm. okay? It's just a very difficult task. Now, the reason that they mention GF and CF, gluten and casein, is because the two most common delayed food sensitivities are to gluten and casein, which are very large proteins. And they're large proteins, and so if they don't get broken down, it's very easy for the body to react to those at the intestinal level. And if they get out of hand, you can get into some pretty significant disease processes. Now, the problem is, is that usually we don't have children who are in compromised immune states only limited to GF and CF. We usually have all kinds of other sensitivities. And believe it or not, if things are bad enough, you're usually reactive to everything they're eating. Well, that's a great point. I'm going I'm to stop you right there and ask you this question because um, one of the things we did is um, we did a food allergy test on Jake, which looked for mm-hmm. the IgE and IgG allergies. Right. And it came back, I don't know if you remember, I know you see a lot of patients, but on Jake's, there were over 150 food allergies. And I think I came in here in tears saying, sure. you know, what are we going to feed our child? Air and water. And, you know, I just, I, and then I didn't trust the results. And having a lab background, I can tell you that I've always heard the old adage is that a lot of food allergy testing is not very specific and it can reflect and you made a really great statement about this how it can reflect a, a neuroinflammation going on which mm-hmm. can kind of skew your results so sure. if we did that same food allergy panel today i'm curious if a lot of those allergies would not be there correct they wouldn't and that's that's an excellent point because i will tell you that the way that i've kind of developed a lot of doctors will jump into a food testing panel immediately I don't really like to do that because what you're going to wind up doing is creating a lot of turmoil because you are going to be allergic to a whole lot of foods and you're going to go through a huge crisis worrying about what to feed your child. Mm -hmm. Now, what we've been talking about in this show, though, is, is generally the fact that we can understand the genetic foundation, the biomarker determined by biomarkers to give us the ability to then modulate the immune system. And so I find myself in the treatment of children recently, and let's say within the last 12 to 18 months, delaying the food sensitivity panel. Now, I do recommend gluten and casein sensitivity, uh, excuse me, gluten and casein removal, Mm -hmm. because you will find out that the majority of kids are sensitive to that if Mm -hmm. they're severe enough in their immune dysfunction. Well, and I will say that the number one thing parents have told me is once they remove gluten, they lose, the kid loses aggression and a lot of hyperactivity. You know, and I will tell you, especially if you're European and descent patterns, we just really weren't meant to have wheat products around or Mm -hmm. those type of gluten, high gluten containing products because it just wasn't what we were essentially developed on in our genetic background. Mm And so that shouldn't be really surprising to us. And it's really not as difficult as people think. But, you know, you have to have the whole family adopt it. And I've gone through it. My oldest son is gluten-sensitive. And I can tell you, I tried for a couple of months to buck the trend and say, okay, <laughs> you uh, you don't eat your gluten, and I'm going to go over here and eat my sandwich or my pasta. 
And I'll tell you that really when you find out, and obviously I'm Northern European in descent, you find out that typically when you take the whole family gluten-free that your whole family does feel better. In well, fact, can, I do. Yeah, can I tell you in our family, uh, so Jake has autism, but the three others of us have allergies and asthma. Mm-hmm. And t- we, you're right, we had to remove all gluten because it's not fair to penalize one child in the family and say, oh, sorry, no. we all get pizza hut tonight but sorry son you're stuck with this cardboard pizza yeah for salad (laughs) so uh we removed gluten from the entire family it was not in our home it took us about six months to finally get it out of our house but i can tell you that all of our allergy symptoms have improved my asthma is minimal if even existing and uh, i really believe that we are sensitive to gluten as a family yeah so you know i've seen a lot of trauma go on in patients you know and i'm a tertiary referral source you know the people who get to see me I mean, they've seen umpteen other doctors, and and usually what I wind up noticing, and especially parents who are knowledgeable and have gone to see a lot of other specialists, uh, whether they're Dan specialists or people who are knowledgeable in this issue, they've done all the right testing, but a lot of times the timing is just not right. Mm-hmm. You don't jump the first time you see it and go to a food panel. That's a big problem. Well, and it got us on a wrong track, I think, early on because, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how much emotional turmoil it is to worry about 150 foods that you can't expose your child to. I mean, it was to the point we actually thought we'd have to homeschool him because, oh my gosh, what if he gets into a violation of one of those foods at school? Yeah, now I will tell you that what my recommendation now is, is let's find out why the immune system is the way it is. Let's do our best to start modulating it. And then at the appropriate time, usually three to six months into the therapeutic in our hands, let's go ahead and then check the food panel then because it will have modified itself. Mm -hmm. And you will have better control of the B cell system and you essentially will have taken a lot of those sensitivities down. Now IgG does not modify itself quickly. So you don't want to rush that decision. Mm And some doctors would even say, wait a couple of years. I'm not really comfortable waiting that long because the parent really wants to know. Right. Okay. But in general, just I think that you have to go ahead and, and plan for it up front. So if you're really getting into this new, what I would recommend is you do go gluten and casein free. You do need to add some enzymes. And then I, what I tell people is if you have the appropriate enzymes and you don't want to ostracize your child from this, and invariably you're going to have your child that needs to go to a birthday party and eat pizza and cake, okay? And so in general, what we typically recommend is that you go ahead and let them do that. You just give them two uh, of the enzymes before they go and two when they get back and let's go ahead and, and use it. And you need to have them around because invariably the child will cheat. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to go to the neighbors and get into gluten or they're going to just like my oldest son does and he's 12 he's going to talk granny into getting him some gluten <laughs> but now he's finally learned that hey i eat that stuff and i don't feel very good yeah i eat gluten now and i don't feel well i feel right. very sluggish and lethargic and it's just i don't feel good overall and um actually it's a that's an important point i know we're going to get to that later on digestive enzymes but the one thing i wanted to add as well was phenol uh, reactions because you talked about difference between food allergies and food intolerances. Mm-hmm. Um, phenolytic foods or highly phenolic foods are the dark fruits and vegetables, and they're the ones that are really good for us, right? It's right. dark leafy green vegetables and the strawberries and the berries. So when I found out Jake had a phenol reaction, which showed up by a pink rash on his cheeks and his ears, um, all the parents said, "Well, get rid of phenols, you know, stop phenols." But those are the healthy foods. So I did start using enzymes, and um, also as you were able to get the metals out of his body, that was the other important thing I was going to mention, that removing the metals really helped him uh, to not have the reactions to those foods. And I don't know all the biochemistry of how that works, um, but I can tell you for us, the enzymes were huge. And that way Jake could eat nutritious foods without having reactions. Well, you know, the, the way you need to understand that is the way that heavy metals typically hurt us and high concentrations is that they get in the way of what minerals are supposed to do. And so um, if I have enzymes or hormones that need magnesium or calcium or sodium or potassium or any of these and I have too many heavy metals on board, I'm actually interrupting the ability of that enzyme or hormone to work. And so clearly when you're dealing with phenol sensitivities and you're dealing with other uh, enzymatic processes, um, by removing the metals, you take away the potential for that interruption to occur. And um, now removing the metals has become a lot easier, I would say, these days. Um, 
just because of some of the things we've learned recently. But obviously, you want to ensure that you look at the child as a whole instead of looking at a single single um, event or change that you mm-hmm. need to, to, to have happen. So anytime a child has a uh, food sensitivity, all it does is make me back up and say, where did the immune system go wrong? Well, we, uh, we have a true life example of that. Um, one of the tests that came back positive for both IgE and IgG on the allergy test was peanuts. And, of course, you can go online and look at all the rise in peanut allergies now because mm-hmm. our kids really are very sensitive. And um, I did an experiment. I found when we fed Jake organic peanut butter, he had no reaction. When we had conventional peanut butter, he had a reaction. So that told me it was probably maybe not the peanuts. It could have been the pesticides used on the conventional peanuts. It could have been that they were genetically modified, any number of things. But um, I like to encourage parents, just from our experience, to really try to go as organic as you can. I know I hear a lot of parents say, well, it's too expensive. It's really not because you stop buying a lot of the processed foods and you save money if you can buy raw whole foods and organic foods and really get rid of a lot of the toxins and pesticides. Because... One thing that they talked a lot about at the conference is our kids are in toxic overload. And I know you've talked about that, and we've had this discussion on past shows, is they're so much bombarding their systems from so many directions, air pollution, water pollution. And if we can control foods, you know, as far as healthy, organic foods, mm-hmm. then I think we can do a huge uh, favor to our kids. Well, sure, and I think it's good for yourself. I mean, obviously these kids got the genetics from somewhere. Yeah, that's so, true. so, you know, invariably the way we always talk about the workup of these kids is it turns out to be a blessing for the whole family. Mm-hmm. And it really does. And it, it, you have to always – I'm always a person that tries to take a positive skew on why we got to where we are. And so obviously the, the good Lord is trying to tell you where you need to be and is trying to direct you in that in – that, um, uh, knowledge base, and obviously it's the way that's worked for us. And uh, I want before we leave the topic of diet, uh, I wanted to add one more thing because um, one of the things parents find that's a little easier to to move into a GFCF diet is they find there's a lot of great products in the market, and I'm saying that a little sarcastically because they're prepackaged, gluten-free cookies and cupcakes and snacks. Well, if you look at the labels, they have preservatives and artificial colors and. They have just a lot of stuff in them that the kids shouldn't have. And, um, you know, it's great in theory that, hey, it's somebody's making it easier for me to feed my kid. But we, uh, we really noticed when we started, started switching to a lot of the GFCF versions of things that Jake had yeast flares. Uh, sure. I think we had our first big yeast reaction when we went on the diet. And the problem was we were substituting with all the sweets and cereals and the bars and the cookies yeah, they were gluten casein free, but they were full of sugar. It's kind of like fat free things. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things I think that parents really miss out on is they don't really understand our kids are sensitive to a lot of things, but you got to really watch the sugar because um, that can, if, if their gut is uh, imbalanced in what they call dysbiosis and there's an overgrowth of yeast in the gut or, uh, you know, the normal uh, bacteria is not uh, doing its job then you have a problem. And that's why I'm going to say, in addition to the digestive enzymes, uh, I believe in probiotics. Sure. And you're supporting it. Very much probiotics. So. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And obviously, well, the problem with uh, sugars in general is one that they, people like to talk that they feed yeast, and indeed they may. But the, really what it does in the body is it feeds acidity. And by feeding acidity, uh, when you make a body acidic, you actually give the the opportunistic infection, whatever it is, you give it the advantage mm-hmm. because our body really only goes into acidity when it's in a massive inflammatory state naturally. Mm-hmm. Now, we create that really easily today with the standard American diet because it's got so many processed foods and not very much raw food and lots of things like meat and sugars and carbs that drive us into acidity. And so that's an actually an old naturopathic trick to actually uh, alkalinize the body mm-hmm. because it does, doesn't does favor infections from other things. And so I, I try to, you know, a lot of people can get kind of carried away with yeast diets. I mean, they'll have you eat no sugar, no right. carbohydrates. Which is fruit, and, too. Yeah. So they say no fruit. And that's not really true because there are certain fruits that do alkalinize the body. And I think that you can also cheat by alkalinizing the body artificially. And I don't mean you can have your way with sugars. But in general, I think that you ought to pay attention to it. And that's pretty simple to get some pH paper and just test either saliva or urine. I actually prefer saliva, even though some people say that's not as accurate. It's really easy to check in the child. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I'll tell you that, um, you know, I alkalinized my body uh, pretty much for good about two years ago because I maintain it. And I have been much healthier during that time than when I really wasn't paying attention to it. Now, have you done that through diet or supplements or both? I did it through supplements. I mm-hmm. tried through diet and it didn't work very well. Because you're a carnivore, right? <laughs> I'm pretty much of a carnivore, you know. <laughs> I was raised on the Texas-Mexican, Tex-Mex diet. And, okay. <laughs> you know, and everything else. But I will tell you that... Um, you know, as Texans, we like beef. and Well, not yeah. all Texans. I'm a vegetarian, well, which I, I know you give that. me grief about. But uh, <laughs> I, at least I know that I'm more alkaline probably, right? Well, the, that you would hope so. Okay. <laughs> uh, the problem is in many metabolic reactions, you will create acidity. Mm-hmm. And um, acidity is just not a great environment for uh, the, the, um, the biochemistry um, reaction speed of many enzymes, hormones, etc. And so... Many naturopathic doctors preach that alkalinity can actually help hormonal function and enzymatic function, and I find no reason to doubt that. I really think it makes sense from a biochemical standpoint. I was reading recently that actually alkaline gut can also help reduce your risk of colon cancer. I don't think there's any doubt for the same Mm -hmm. reasons. Right. Now, obviously, an alkaline gut can also help you contain yeast and dysbiosis. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now... Um, typically with a supplement, I use a little one called acid to alkaline, which is just a little capsule that you take and, um, uh, probably pretty much has in it everything you wouldn't eat, but you might get it a, uh, kind of a foo-foo juice bar, you know? <laughs> and so, um, uh, there's a lot of products that are like that, but, and some people will say drink, uh, you know, um, bicarbonate of soda and all that kind of stuff. That's just nasty. I wouldn't do that. I certainly wouldn't torture my kids with it. But um, Yeah, I don't think my kids would take it. No, that. I don't think so. And I'll tell you what, it's just it's not pleasant. But there's a lot of um, a lot of focus that should be paid to that. And if you ever want to know if your child's not doing well, let's say you have alkalinized them and you're kind of suspicious that they might be a little yeasty or they might be a little dysbiotic or something might be going wrong you can pretty much check ph and tell because they will go rapidly to acidity during any type of infection so that might be a good idea for us as parents to uh, monitor yeast because i know when jake has yeast flares you know we can maybe it'd be good to, it's real to, simple. to see it in advance before we start seeing the bad behaviors and yeah, you don't have to check organic acids or blood tests right. or any of that stuff expensive tests stick, right you just stick a ph chip in their mouth and you pretty much can tell okay and you know the more experience you get lisa you can tell and you have to believe the parent as a doctor because they're right okay and so in general you just want to you want to have a quick way to kind of con- confirm it and that's a very easy thing to do at home yeah we're going through a yeast flare now which uh, i think i triggered with jake's birthday party we had uh lots of sweets well we had uh, halloween and then we had jake's birthday party so he ate sugar for about five days straight and you know what even though it was organic chocolate and it was healthy right. it's still sugar and here comes thanksgiving and christmas yeah too. <laughs> so uh we're dealing with yeast right now you know and like you said as a parent i haven't done an expensive blood test or a you know stool specimen or whatever but i know because he's acting drunk after he eats and has the yeasty behavior so sure I uh, just kind of know. Well, I want to ask you one more question uh, sure. about something I learned at the conference because there's a really interesting speaker, Dr. Russell Blaylock, and he's written a few books on this topic. Um, one of them is Excitotoxins, the Taste That Kills, and he talks about the hazards of MSG, in particular glutamate, and how it can cause uh, what he calls immunoexcitotoxicity. So basically a lot of things you've been saying all along for many years about neuroinflammation, he's talking about um, helping to control that through diet and eliminating MSG. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, most people don't really understand this uh, unless you've been in the um, neurological world, and that is that glutamic acid is one of our uh, neurotransmitters, and it's actually a stimulant. Now, the problem with these kids um, in general is that we could probably, in certain areas of the brain, use some stimulation, like in the reticular activating system that modifies our processing speed. But in other areas of the brain, uh, because dopamine tends to be low in these kids, and dopamine is actually a calming agent, so when it's low, the brain's already in a kind of a hyper-stimulated, highly distractible, unfocused state. The last thing you need to do is stimulate it some more, mm-hmm. okay? And so glutamic acid is a pretty easy way to overstimulate these kids and really is found in a lot more things than you think it is. Well, uh, I'm just going to throw something out there. If you go to the website, msgtruth.org, It'll list all the names, disguise names for MSG. So the food manufacturers have wised up that we don't want to buy products with MSG. So they call them other things like caramel coloring or hydrolyzed vegetable protein, but it's really still MSG. Sure. So um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about 
you need to go with whole foods and non-packaged or pre-packaged foods and things that are in their raw, more, most um, primitive states. So they're not all packaged up with 50 ingredients on the label. Right, and you know, and most people will understand that if you eat too much MSG, you might get a headache. Like a, I have today, because I had a burrito for lunch correct. at a Mexican restaurant, which I'm pretty sure use them as, use MSG. Well, and pretty much all of them do. Right. Okay, because they want you to come back to their restaurant, and they think that that really helps. But um, so you would understand that state, and that makes your nerves in a uh, in a quite hypersensitive state, and that mm -hmm. typically drives your headaches. Well, your kids can't tell you what's going on. All right. you see is the behaviors. Mm -hmm. And in general, I think that uh, Dr. Blaylock is certainly very correct on this assumption. Really, when it comes down to it, uh, whether we like it or not, the truth uh, is sometimes not something we want to hear. But uh, for the most part, a raw diet is really the best way for us to, to eat. And it was a lot easier, um, you know, I would say even 30 or 40 years ago. I can mm -hmm. remember when I was a kid, we, didn't, we, we mo cooked most of our meals, didn't go out a whole lot. And then... As I got older and through the 70s and 80s, we went out more and more and more, and it's become kind of a social trend, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's just too easy to eat out these days, It's especially with more, more families working and more parents working, and both the parents are working. I mean, it becomes a very big issue. Well, and that goes back to the, the complaint I hear from parents is that the organic or the healthy diet is takes too, you know, it's firstly too, first too costly, but um, which I address, but it's uh, too time consuming. And I can tell you, I work outside the home and so I don't have an opportunity to cook during the week, but I spend my weekends doing the shopping and the cooking and the freezing for the following week. Cause at least during the work week, I know that my family's eating healthy. Um, and you know, I think it's just important. It's like anything, you got to put your health as a priority. And, you know, it's like they tell you, you need to exercise every day. Well, if you right. don't schedule it into your day, it's not going to happen. Well, if I could add one more thing about glutamic acid. Glutamic acid is, or glutamate, is just a tremendously powerful stimulant. And because of that nature, if you expose your children over and over and over, there has been a lot of research to really point to the fact that that um, glutamic acid can induce injury or damage to certain areas of the brain because it's such a powerful excitotoxin. And so, you know, eating out or eating processed foods every day, like your chicken nuggets, mm -hmm. is not uh, a great thing necessarily, okay? And uh, in, in general, I think that we just, we, we certainly are still in the infancy of learning about glutamic acid's effects, but uh, clearly we know that it exists and that we're using a lot of it in our society. I think the key to this is obviously to go to to go away from this processed food issue and try to get to a more uh, balanced diet and and obviously in these kids glutamic acid and dopamine fight each other and these kids are already dopamine depleted and you know by their methylation deficiencies etc and so we really have to avoid things like that at all costs for them. Well, the one thing we haven't been able to avoid, and I won't, this isn't a show about vaccines, but um, there is MSG in vaccines. Sure there is. <laughs> and in a liquid form, it's really potent. It gets to where it needs to go in the brain. Um, well, so let's shift gears, um, if we can, and uh, move away from diet and uh, talk about some supplements. And supplements is a really wide category. Uh, we addressed some of the um, discussion around the digestive enzymes and the probiotic, but since it is uh, cold and flu season and we're well into it now, I'd like for you to talk about um, healing the immune system through supplementation. And I know that we are on some of your recommendations right now, all of us, the whole family. Um, but if you can address some of the supplements that are really key, in your opinion, for getting us through the cold and flu season. For the cold and flus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Big topic. Um, well, and I'm sorry. If you'd like to generalize and talk about the uh, the rest of the year, but well, primarily, I, I know we're interested. Well, in even for food. normal, even mm -hmm. for normal people, um, people without immune compromise or immune inefficiency, um, the T cells of the immune system, the cells that I call the killer cells, which uh, essentially kill viruses, bacteria, fungus, and, and cancer, for that matter. Um, they are the most important uh, cells at controlling infectious processes. So, in, in this time of swine flu and and soon to be seasonal influenza. Um, on top of that, we, we really like to use things that are modif uh, have the potential to modify or enhance T cell function. So what we tend to like to do is we tend to add some vitamin D in that case, which most of these children should be on anyway, and I'll tell you I haven't found one yet that really doesn't need it, mm -hmm. okay? Vitamin D deficiency helps B cells control their inflammatory state but it also does modify or enhance the immune system function. 
The most effective thing that I've seen, I mean, people do use other things to stimulate T-cells, uh, everything from glandulars like thymus, but the most effective one that I've found so far is called a proline-rich protein spray. And proline-rich proteins or proline-rich peptides are basically found in colostrum. Okay, and colostrum or mother's milk, you know, contains antibodies to help us mm -hmm. fight infection. But what we found underneath is that there was also in the colostrum a lot of proline-rich proteins. And these proline-rich proteins have the effect of stim stimulating T cells. And so it is becoming kind of clear to me that obviously children who are breastfed probably do have a better ability mm -hmm. to stimulate the thymus that actually creates these T-cells and may be at less, less risk for developing spectrum disorders or developmental delay. Now, I don't want to say that absolutely, but we do have a little spray that we use from neurobiologics that uh, essentially you spray in the drink or a mouth, and it tastes kind of like bad vanilla, I guess is a good way to put it, but has been very effective at raising the T-cell numbers. Now, you know we check everything and so mm -hmm. we probably find 30 percent of our affected children have uh, immune deficiencies of the t-cells because we measure them right and by using the proline rich proteins typically within two to three months we see a return to normal in most of those children well and, and i'll interject real quickly um i had cold uh, pretty significant cold symptoms coming on about a week ago and i had to travel out of the country which was really bad timing so i had the body aches and the chills and the fever and I was uh, taking the vitamin D3 drops, but I did uh, four of those sprays of the PRP. Mm -hmm. And within eight hours, all of my symptoms were gone. Right. And I was pretty convinced after that that if it <laughs> helped me with that, then it was definitely helping my son or would help my son. Well, I wish everybody was like that. But that, that we hear that testimonial a lot. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's the way it was planned to be. Um, that That's the way it was intended to be. But I would tell you that in general... Um, if you use that, I really have seen very few cases of influenza on people that are on it mm -hmm. versus people that are not on it. I've seen uh, literally a thousand cases of influenza. Yeah, we've uh, the whole family is on the vitamin D3 drops mm -hmm. and have been since, I guess, late August. And none of us have had any colds or flu. So that's pretty exciting in our house. Uh, and then there's all kinds of other supplements that can help your T cells. I just really stick with the PRP. It's cost effective. Mm -hmm. Um, you can get into all the glandulars, and I used to use glandulars for this, but sometimes that makes people a little bit nervous um, who are not used to glandular elements. And um, even colostrum sometimes makes people nervous because they don't know where the source of it is. Mm -hmm. But um, I would tell you that in general the PRP uh, from a from an objective standpoint of measuring the T cells has been the most effective for us. So I think during this swine flu um, pandemic that we're having. I don't think there's any doubt that I believe that most families should probably be on a little PRP spray plus vitamin D. Well, and we're also doing the zinc. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've got us, ourselves on the liquid zinc, the zinc drink, and sure. the ultra potency. Um, so we're doing kind of the, the daily, I guess, immune support. But it's really nice to know about some of these other supplements um, for yeah. the immune support. Yeah, and I want to tell you about one other product that we've kind of initially started using and um, it turns out that blood sugar concentration can have effect on t-cell function and just like in diabetics and it also turns out that uh, t-cells have uh, sometimes especially when you have a methylation deficiency like in these kids have poor mitochondrial function so they don't function very well so there's actually a, um, a product called mitochondrial renew that we like to use that has vitamin c zinc biotin, alpha-lipoic acid, and a little bit of vanadium in it that tends to be very effective at, at helping that. So the problem is when you deal with these methylation deficiencies that uh, these children and families tend to carry around, you really are, you're really a setup mm -hmm. for acquiring these, these infectious agents and actually not clearing them, and then on top of that, not healing back from the insult that that infectious agent caused. So if you do have an infected child, I'd really encourage you to actually uh, treat the whole family. Okay, well, that's great advice. Well, um, the other thing um, that I'd like to talk on just briefly about, because we actually had a whole episode dedicated to uh, heavy metals and chelation, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, Jake's metals are cleared, and they have been, to my knowledge, for a few months, uh, at least six months now, that he started clearing his own metals. We don't, we, so we're not currently doing any oral chelators, and I consider those as part of the supplement family. 
Um, but one of the things that I know you've said before, and I've I've heard from others is uh, glutathione is a really good um, way to support the immune system right. and also keep the metals um, at bay. And then also, um, I was going to ask you about NAC or NAC because I know for Jake it seemed like using the NAC and glutathione together really helped with a lot of his detox and clearing the metals. So what's your thought on like overall, I guess for lack of a better word, um, maintenance to keep the metal free? <laughs> Yeah, I, well, you know, obviously the, the whole purpose of the methionine pathway is to create glutathione, and NAC is included in that process. Now, NAC by itself does have an ability to chelate some forms of, of metals and give you some inflammatory control. Now, glutathione also is a primary agent for inflammatory control and also for um, removal of toxins. So, um, in general, what happens is I mean, our, our ultimate purpose is to try to make the glutathione from a native standpoint and get, get reinitiate the children's ability to, or the child's ability to, um, to develop their own glutathione and their own NAC. But uh, I've never seen a child who is taking supplemental glutathione or NAC have any difficulty. If not, they do actually feel better mm -hmm. in general. And so you certainly don't want to ever criticize anybody for using it. Now, unfortunately, the patients that I see, especially in this kind of economic downturn, um, uh, the parents are usually interested in knocking down their supplement exactly. load. Exactly, <laughs> and not adding them. Right. right, and so, you know, what we are trying to do through, and you, know, and you know I help to design products for neurobiologics, is we're trying to develop these basically um, genetically specific products that put more of these agents together instead of having 100 different bottles. And so I think we'll be more successful at doing that because, I mean, it gets very old. I mean, I just think about the, the simple supplements that I have to give my, my children who are neurotypical and compared to what, you know, an affected child. I mean, I just don't know how some parents do it. We have a lot of spreadsheets and charts, exactly. and, yeah, it gets really um, tedious. Sure, and, I, and if the child's having a bad day, I just uh, – very hard to imagine. So really our focus is to try to take – understanding and what you have to do I think many parents in supplementation get confused because they don't really understand what that specific supplement does mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of them follow the latest greatest okay um, and let me just throw one out for you curcumin a perfect example very potent antioxidant I do happen to like it a lot has neuroprotective effects from an antioxidant standpoint, but really it's an antioxidant. That's what it is, mm -hmm. okay? And so is it better theoretically than any of these other antioxidants? The answer is not necessarily. It may have a little bit better penetration into the brain or into the nervous system itself, but it is the latest and greatest hot, mm -hmm. hot topic. So what we'll find out is that a lot of times when we review supplement loads, or, and I call them loads because that's what they are, we find out there's a whole lot of overlap and you're kind of overkilling a lot of things and that can make your life a lot easier. So that's really why you got to have a knowledgeable doctor to help you kind of weed through that. Well, and, and that you made such a great point because prior to us seeing you for the first time, we had the spreadsheet of, I don't know, 50 different supplements for mm -hmm. Jake. And if you do some of them twice a day, you're up to a hundred different ones. And you know, families were, our families were appalled because we'd show up on any family visit with our suitcase of supplements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were questioning if we were really doing the right thing. And the one thing that was really difficult as a parent to manage is when he had great progress and was doing phenomenal, and I remember some of those huge gains, people would say, oh, what did you do? Well, let me pull out my spreadsheet. And, you know, it's really difficult to assess. And the same, on the same note, if he had regression and had temper tantrums just out of the blue for three days straight, how in the world do you know which of the supplements may have been causing that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things I like to do, and uh, I haven't checked with you on this one, so I love your comment, but uh, about two weeks ago, he started this new behavior where he's going to the bathroom about every 15 minutes, just constantly needing to go and urinate. And if he didn't make it to the bathroom, he'd go in his pants. So we were wondering if it was yeast. We were wondering if it was uh, actually did a urinary tract um, infection dipstick test on him to see mm -hmm. if he had white blood cells or whatever, and that was negative. And then we thought, well, maybe it's a stem. We were trying to, you know, figure out why is he yearning like this. And uh, around that time, we were talking to Dr. Lipnitz, uh, our nutritionist, and he said, well, you know, maybe he's trying to detox and maybe there's something coming out. Well, we took Jake off all supplements for about a week. 
we call it supplement vacation. And we haven't done that. Actually, he's been on supplements for months and months and months. We did a week off and he stopped the behavior. So I started wondering, well, maybe we need to tweak you know, what he's on and maybe slowly start reintroducing things now, even though he's on many fewer things, but just to see uh, and observe you know, what's changed. So in your opinion, do you think it's wise to take a supplement vacation for a week out of well, every um, few months? I think for some, some supplements, that's probably true. I think for others, it might not be the greatest yeah. idea. I certainly don't want to disagree with Glenn Lutness, who's you know extremely knowledgeable mm-hmm. uh, in this realm. But um, I think that obviously it gets it gets old, and the body can get overloaded. And I think that will react in in strange ways. Um, supplement vacations, um, I think, are okay. I think you just got to understand which supplements you're doing. Now, yeah, and actually, the one I suspect, and I'd like your feedback on this, was the vitamin C. We had them on a pretty high dose of sure. vitamin C. And I know that can form crystals in the urine. And I yeah, was, very, vitamin C is very irritating to yeah. the urinary tract in high, in high concentrations. And he's been in on it for a while. Well, and you've got to understand what you're trying to do with supplementation. Supplementation is not for today. Mm-hmm. Supplementation is to build the pool for tomorrow and next week and the week after that and the week after that. So if you miss a day and you take a, a supplement vacation, you really not shouldn't lose anything if you've built the pool up. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, if, and actually we haven't seen any regression. That's right, because you, you've built the pool. Mm-hmm. Now, if you haven't built the pool, um, then you are going to see a regression, and a lot of times it can be used as actually a diagnostic for that agent. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't recommend stopping everything at once because you won't figure out what you, right, <laughs> what you really right. were doing. But I would tell you that certainly I think that there's a nice alternation. Now, I, from a supplement standpoint, I am not um, of the opinion that we just do it without the knowledge of why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, we've got an oxidative stress issue. Let's add every cool antioxidant we can think of. You know, I am just not into that. I really like to know what I'm trying to accomplish with each of these. And so I'm a really big fan of what I call genetically founded supplementation, meaning that we need to understand based on biomarkers, based on uh, knowledge of biochemical pathways, what we're really trying to accomplish with the supplement we're using well one of the, so you bring up a great topic because um, I've heard this a lot and, and I'll bring it up again I know we did talk about it briefly at one of our past episodes but parents say sometimes well my child's an under methylator and over methylator there you go I know you love this question right but I had a mom that actually told me at the conference well my son's an over methylator and I said, well, are you sure? Because, you know, I've heard that's a little less common. She's, no, 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 I'm sure. And actually, he can't handle methyl B12. He can only handle hydroxy B12. Sure. So um, my question for you is, you know, we've got this what whole... What about methylfolate? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so can you, can, can you address, you know, and by the way, at this conference, we all had the, the map of the methylation pathway that was all given to us so we can all become biochemistry PhDs at the end of all this. But uh, can you address... You know, specifically to what you said earlier, how you how you pers- how you are prescriptive on identifying what parts of the methylation pathway are in disrepair. I mean, it's not the same for all kids, right? So, no. You know. And the answer typically for that is is that we typically judge it off the homocysteine level. Okay. And uh, people that are true overmethylators typically do not have the effect on the homocysteine that we see in, in true undermethylators. And so I won't go into too much detail about that, obviously, because um, I think it infringe <laughs> on some of our, uh, our knowledge base. But what I will tell you in general that we need to Overmethylators are a very rare group. And what I will tell you is that you would be uh, surprised at um, even in the overmethylators, you still need methyl B12 uh, in some facet. Now, you shouldn't overload the child in it, but it doesn't mean you only need hydroxy B12. The answer is you have to have a biomarker to understand how much of which component that you need to put in there. Mm-hmm. Am I making sense? Absolutely. So you can't just make a blanket statement, or I'm an methylator, so all I need is hydroxy B12, because methylation doesn't just involve B12. Everybody talks about B12, forget B12. That's easy to get in the body. Okay, I'm sorry. And we can go through that discussion all you want, but you can get B12 in the body very easy sublingually or many other ways. The biggest problem is the folinic acid, the mm-hmm. methylfolate. And... There's no hydroxyfolate, let's just put it that way. Okay. Okay, because, and if your child is dopamine depleted, you know, we have tests to identify the dopamine 
function at the brain level. And, and we use that in our sense review system to determine where your dopamine status is. Now, it may be wise in a child who typically uh, is an overmethylator. And typically when I see children with overmethylation issues or what parents think is overmethylation, you just have a complete imbalance between the amount of methyl B12 you're putting into the child without the support of methylfolate. So actually that's a great point. So can we induce an overmethylation state by possibly. doing MB12 and not folinic acid? Very possibly. Because, you know, that's one of the questions I had. And I will give you a great example. Um, we had Jake on the new lollipops that are MB12, and mm -hmm. uh, we gave it to him on noon on a Monday. He did not go to sleep till Wednesday night, so that kid was up for two nights in a row. So I actually emailed uh, the founder of the company, who's, who's an awesome person, uh, Stan Kurtz, and Stan said, you know, some kids can't handle the MB12 by itself. That's exactly what you're saying. And he did say the next version is probably going to have this folinic acid because of that very reason. So I saw it firsthand in my son that he gave him a lot of B12, and wow, he just couldn't break yeah, it down. And the problem with folinic acid, as you and I both know, um, it's not absorbed very well orally. Right. So you can put it in a lollipop all you want and feel great that you got it in there, but it doesn't mean the child's absorbing it. Mm -hmm. Well, so, my son really absorbed it. I'm serious. He was up for two nights. No, I'm talking about, <laughs> no, I'm talking about folinic acid. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, Remember okay. I told you methyl okay. B12 is not a problem. Okay, okay. Because that can go in the great. body. Okay. So the challenge is then getting it absorbed. Now, would that need to be in a liposomal state to get it absorbed? Probably. Okay. Good luck. That's what we're trying to do. Oh, okay. Well, so that'll be their challenge. Maybe you should call Stan and tell them. <laughs> uh, we got some other people working on yeah. it. But. So um, with that, though, I want to, so some of your predecessors working on some of this um, or have worked, who have worked on treating the methylation pathway defects have been uh, obviously Amy Yasko sure. and uh, Pfeiffer, um, mm -hmm. Pfeiffer, or Dr. Walsh, sorry, mm -hmm. at Pfeiffer Institute. And they propose a Jill lot James. of, and Jill James, sorry. Well, I'm talking about specifically doctors who uh, had the identified the pathway defects and then identified supplements to treat that. Sure. And I don't know that uh, Dr. James actually sure. prescribed that, but that's why I said those two. But what they did is they have a list of all the methyl donors that you need to give as nutritional or diet, I'm sorry, supplement support. Things like SAMI, CoQ10, some of those methyl donors. And then, you know, when you look at the list, you're ending up with quite a few things that you're adding into this pathway. And you know, like you said earlier, we as parents don't want to have more supplements, we want to have fewer, which is why the Yasco protocol, as great as I think it may be, it's not for us because I don't know if we could manage all of that. Well, let me uh, give you an example. So I take a beautiful automobile, let's say a new Camaro, okay, and I put gas in it and I put oil in it and I never turn the key, okay? Now, does it run? No, because you never turn the key to turn it on. Mm -hmm. Does it have all the stuff in it that's ready to run? Exactly. So just because you put a supplement in to, to overcome a deficiency does not mean you, does not absolutely mean that you initiate the proper biochemical pathway. Right. And if the gut. You don't have the activator. Well, and also it has to do with the way it's delivered and if the gut can absor absorb it, right? But it doesn't even matter. Even if you get it absorbed, if you don't have the activator okay. to make the chemical reaction happen, all you do is got a whole lot of pools that are full of stuff, okay, but nothing's so going so from one to the other. So how do we activate there. the pool? Are the, you allowed to say that? The answer is the methylation process. Okay. We've got to use the methylation activators because methyl B12 and folinic acid are cofactors in almost in a lot of significant um, enzymatic and hormonal processes. So this goes back to one of our earlier discussions about you know we did do all the genetic testing on Jake. We did. Oh, I don't even want to tell you how many genes we looked sure. at. But uh, that didn't really give us a lot of information. I mean, yeah, he's got the MTHFR polymorphism, but so does a third of the population from Northern Europe, right? So, you know, that doesn't really tell us that he has certain defects in the pathway other than the markers that you've done in your office, and we found that. But um, I think um, our kind of in closing our overall message, I mean, what would you like to say to parents that come in and, you know, like I was and say, hey, Dr. Stewart, you know, we're on all these supplements. Please help. Well, you know, what I really want to say about supplementation is something that I've preached many times before, and that is that you can put all the supplements you want in the body, and, it, and they may indeed get absorbed. Now, maybe sometimes they don't get absorbed because of gut issues, etc. but when they get absorbed, you then have to deliver them to the right place. And unfortunately, that requires a lot of what we call neurotrophic or trophic factors, which are like growth hormones. And if you don't deliver those to the right place, they really don't do a whole lot except float, float around in the blood. Mm -hmm. And so very, like, 
very commonly when we see a child come to see us with a methylation defect, they'll have a regular B12 level checked in their blood and it's through the roof. I mean, I've seen them high, high as 50,000. Wow. In fact, I saw one today, 58,000. Okay? Oh, unbelievable. All right. So the problem is, is that that is telling us something. And so the doctors are like, well, you've got more than plenty of B12 in your body. Well, what that means is the B12 is not in the form that it needs to be to be transported to the place it really needs to go. Was this parent doing the shots or the supplements? Or? They were doing regular B12 shots from their physician. Okay. Okay. So Without the methyl. And then we become intoxic in B12. Right. Okay. So in general, what I really want you to understand is that the com the process of supplementation is a lot more complex than people think it is. Just because you put it in the body does not mean it goes where it needs to go. Absolutely. And that is the big issue. Okay. So the big issue is, well, how does it get where it needs to go? How can we decide at a cellular level what gets into the cell and what doesn't? Because it appears, it appears that at the foundation level of this issue, that we have a cellular level process that ultimately impacts us at two very important areas, and that's our nervous system and our immune system. And if they don't work well, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, so it's time to end our show today, and I'm very excited to announce that our next broadcast will be on vision therapy, which you know a lot about that's done through your uh, sensory view and your, uh, your clinic, so I'm really excited about that. Um, I want to remind our listeners that they can send us questions via email to questions at drkendallstewart.com, and selected questions will be addressed during the next broadcast. So thank you, Dr. Stewart. I appreciate it, Lisa.